cause I went to bargains galore. That's right, you two can be the proud owner of the quality goes in before that name goes on. One tenth of a dollar, one tenth of a dollar. We got service after the sale. How about perfume? We got perfume. How about an engagement ring? Some for the little lady, some for the little lady, some for the little lady. Three, four dollars. We got a year-end clearance. We got our white sail and a smoke-damaged furniture. You can drive it away today. Act now, act now, and receive as our gift, our gift to you. They come in all colors, one size fits all. No must, no fuss, no spills. You tired of kitchen drudgery? Everything must go. Going out of business, going out of business, going out of business. Fifty percent off original retail price. Skip the middleman. Don't settle for less. How do we do it? How do we do it? Volume, volume, turn up the volume. You heard it advertised. Don't hesitate. Don't be caught with your drawers down. Don't be caught with your drawers down. You can step right up. Step right up. Never stops. Lasts a lifetime. Mows your lawn, and it mows your lawn. And it picks up the kids from school. It gets rid of unwanted facial hair. It gets rid of embarrassing age spots. It delivers a pizza, and it lengthens, and it strengthens, and it finds that slipper that's been at large under the chaise lounge for several weeks. And it plays a mean rhythm master. It makes excuses for unwanted lipstick on your collar, and it's only a dollar. Step right up. Forges your signature. If not completely satisfied, mail back unused portion of product for complete refund of price of purchase. Step right up. Please allow 30 days for delivery. Don't be fooled by cheap imitations. You can living it, living it, laughing it, loving it, swimming it, sleeping it, living it, swimming it, laughing it, loving it. Removes embarrassing stains from contour sheets. That's right, and it entertains visiting relatives. It turns a sandwich into a banquet. Change your shorts, change your life, change your life. Change into a nine-year-old Hindu boy. Get rid of your wife. Then it walks your dog and it doubles on sacks. Doubles on sacks. You can jump back jacks. See you later, alligator. See you later, alligator. And it steals your car. It gets rid of your gambling debts. It quits smoking. It's a friend. It's a companion. It's the only product you will ever need. Follow these easy assembly instructions. It never needs ironing. Well, it takes weights off hips, busts thighs, chin, midriff, gives you dandruff, and it finds you a job. It is a job, and it strips the phone cover, and it free tapes into prior exchange, and it gives you denture, brother. And you know it's a friend, and it's a companion, and it gets rid of your traveler's checks. It's new, it's improved, it's old-fashioned. Well, it takes care of business, never needs winding, never needs winding, never needs winding. Gets rid of blackheads, heartbreaker, psoriasis, Christ. You don't know the meaning of heartbreak, buddy. Come on, come on, come on, come on. 'Cause it's effective, it's defective. It creates household odors, it disinfects, it sanitizes for your protection. It gives you an erection, it wins the election. Why put up with painful corns any longer? It's a redeemable coupon, no obligation, no salesman will visit your home. We got a jackpot, jackpot, jackpot. Prizes, prizes, prizes. All were guaranteed. How do we do it? 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 We need your business. We're going out of business. We'll give you the business. Get on the business end of all. Going out of business sale. Receive all free brochure. Free brochure. 
easy, easy to follow. Assembly instructions, batteries not included. Send before midnight tomorrow, terms available. Step right up. Step right up. Step right up. You got it, buddy. A large print giveth and a small print taketh away. Step right up. You can step right up. You can step right up. Come on, step right up. Welcome back to Napalm and Friends. And this week, I am incredibly fortunate to have the insanely talented magician and artist, Chad Allen. So thank you so much for giving me a bit of your time. Of course. I love the podcast, so it's um, it's great to be on. Oh, thank you. Um, I do want to say I was doing my research on you and found that you have performed in season seven of Fool Us with Penn & Teller, along with being a part of the renowned Magic Castle and just so much more. But before we get into your accomplishments i do want to start from the beginning like how did you find magic and how did you know that this was something that you wanted to pursue wow um that is that's a fun conversation or that's a fun story um so i am blind Mm -hmm. and i was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa at 15 years old and i grew up in rhode island Um, and my attitude about blindness then, and I really didn't even use the word blind, um, was, you know, very defeatist. So, you know, I kind of had this attitude, like I better go out and see the world when I was turned 18, um, before I can't. Mm -hmm. And that got me to Colorado, to Denver, Colorado. And I originally went to art school, but then eventually um, I was looking for, you know, work to kind of keep the bills and all that stuff taken care of. Yeah. And I worked at a record store in Newport, Rhode Island for a couple of years. So that's kind of where I was trying to go. And they didn't have any employment at the record stores that I wanted to work at in Denver. And a friend contacted me and said, Hey, there's this costume shop that's hiring for Halloween. And, you know, while you're looking for work, it might be fun and, you know, make a little money. And so I went and come to find out it was this big purple castle with a drawbridge and a wizard out front. And it was a store called the Wizard's Chest in Denver, Colorado. So I was super excited. I went in and they ended up hiring me full time at the main store instead of, um, you know, just temporary for the costume department. Or I didn't know it was full time right away. Uh, So... I originally sold a lot of the Dungeons and Dragons stuff because I was a really big gamer as a kid. I kind of still am. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, they had a magic counter there, but they had no magician. And so, you know, I would ask 
hey, what are you guys doing with the magic counter? Because people ask me and I, I don't know what to do with it. And they were like, oh, you know, they got this, um, uh, they got this magician to set up the store and blah, blah, blah. And unfortunately, uh, the person just never showed up. And so, you know, I made a stupid joke. I was like, oh, so he disappeared. And they were like, yeah, right. <laughs> and and uh, I said, well, look, if I start learning some of this stuff, will you keep me on through Christmas? Because I didn't know I was a permanent hire yet. And they were like, absolutely. So my first magic trick was for the sake of job security. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I took one trick home. I learned it came back. I was literally a one trick pony. And I didn't, I, I sold out of that one trick because I just kept doing it over and over and over again. So I had to take another trick home and I had to learn that one. And then eventually the pros would come in and they would, you know, introduce themselves and, you know, they'd be like, Hey kid, that's pretty good, but why don't you try it like this? And so I would take their advice. And when they came back, I would do exactly what they recommended and they would tell me more. And that's where I got hooked and started doing kid shows and private lessons and then eventually ended up in L.A. and Magic Castle. And then, you know, the, the ultimate was performing for my heroes, Penn and Teller. I loved Penn and Teller before I loved Magic. So it was just amazing to get that opportunity. Oh, wow. Something I did um, find in an interview that you've done before is when you mention to kind of touch upon your your site is that you mentioned that magic takes place in the mind. And that was just something so profound to me where I was like, you know what, you're, that's right. Like it, a lot of it is just, it's more in the mind than actual visual. So I don't know if that's something that you want to touch upon. Yeah. Um, I've kind of evolved it even a little further now. Um, we see with the brain, mm -hmm. the eyes have one job, which is to filter light and then, it is the brain that processes that information into seeing. And a, a really fun example I use, I have an 11 year old son. So, you know, when his friends would come over, you know, I would take them to play dates or things like that. You know, the kids would ask, you know, crazy questions because they're kids. Mm -hmm. And they would be like, how do you know I'm here? And it was like, cause you're screaming, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and they would ask me like all these you know, questions about blindness. And I would say, okay, let me ask you a question. I say, um, do you go to bed at night? And they would go, yeah. And I'd say, okay, um, you know, do you dream? And they would say, yes. And I say, you know, do you dream about, you know, mom and dad and your friends and all these things? And they go, yeah. And I say, do you see them in your dreams? And they go, yeah. And I say, do you dream with your eyes open? And they go, no. And I say, okay, so that's how I'm seeing you now. And what I'm learning as I'm developing, because what I really love is the idea of playing in things that are quote unquote hyper visual, mm -hmm. right? So the comic book, uh, you know, that I, I had on exhibit at the Exploratorium Museum in 2019, mm -hmm. you know, graphic novel very visual art form. And I wanted to take that and turn it into something that simulated the visual experience of a comic book, but in a non-visual way. Same thing with magic. Everybody perceives it as this hyper-visual thing. 
And a lot of times it can be, but for the magician, it's a very tactile experience. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I'm getting the auditory responses from the, uh, from the audience. And then I'm getting, you know, the tactile of being able to execute the magic. Um, and then, you know, the choreography and the movements and the misdirection and all of that is, is all, it's all designed. It's all, you know, very, very much in a way that an artist would, you know, lay out a painting and, Where's the tree going to go? Where's the, you know, the mountain's going to go? Where's the bird going to go? Whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you structure that. And, but instead of building a, a painting or a, or a picture, I'm building an illusion. I, I mean, I think that's absolutely fantastic. And I think that's already just so much that you're balancing. It's like, you know, you're creating the illusion and you're also managing the audience. But then on top of that, something that we chatted about just briefly before we started recording is that you have this amazing sense of humor. Thank and you. Like you really poke fun at your blindness and you know, you you're very comfortable with it. And I remember in one performance, you just come out on stage, you just kind of like awkwardly start going into the audience until they redirected you. And they just like pulled out scissors and it's like, Oh no, blind man running with scissors. And it was just, hilarious um where did you or how did you develop that sense of humor man i think um that's a really hard question to answer uh i mean i grew up in new england so i think that there's a little bit of that kind of east coast tongue-in-cheek mm-hmm. that's kind of always been a part of my life i i love to laugh i i think that there's an authenticity that comes with being humorous Mm -hmm. so being comfortable with myself and being comfortable with my blindness and being comfortable with being a dad and a magician and you know uh uh whatever it is it's just um you know i i like to play i think that's really what it's about is i like to be playful Mm -hmm. and so you know if if i can if i can make people relax with you know, a gesture, or, you know, something silly. Um, it just, it makes them change their way of seeing the disability. Because for me, it's really not a disability. Now, it may have been, you know, in the beginning when I had this defeatist attitude about blindness, but after I got training, um, which was eight hours a day, five days a week for six months at a training facility in Colorado, um, where I braille and uh, how to travel with a long white cane. And because I had some residual vision at the time, they would uh, blindfold me. So put sleep shades on so that I was, all the students were at the same level. And, you know, if you can do it when you're totally blind, then any sort of vision loss that you may experience later on in life, you can adapt because you have the skills. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so it, it evolved into not a disability, but really just a characteristic. Yeah. You know, so like I have to do things differently and that's okay. And yeah, I deal with discrimination and I deal with, um, you know, things that aren't accessible. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's a lot of ableism out there in the world and stuff like that, that are, that is challenging. Um, but I think you have to learn, you have to learn how to handle yourself. And you have to learn how to, um, you know, figure out how to make things comfortable for you. Uh, and then, you know, you kind of have to tolerate the fact that, 
you know, I do live in a sighted world and I'm, I'm not going to be able to change that. And to try and change that would be so stressful. Yeah. So to, um, instead of like trying to preach to people that are doing something that I find uncomfortable on a street, like if somebody's like grabbing my arm and trying to bring me across the street, um, you know, I'll ask them like, how do you know where I want to go? <laughs> right. And they'll be like, Oh my God, I don't, I have no idea. I just assumed you wanted to cross the street and maybe I did, or maybe I didn't, but it just, it's so much more powerful than, Hey, back off, you know, or something like that. Right. Yeah. The other thing I love to do is, you know, one thing that is a, is a, is a social no, no is when you, um, grab a blind person's cane, because that's like, you know, that's an extension of myself. Mm-hmm. That's like an antenna you know, for an ant, I'm feeling my way through my environment. So if you grab onto that, um, I can't use that tool anymore. Uh, and a friend of mine taught me years ago, he said, you know what I do? He said, I just, if they are only holding onto my cane, I stop and I let go of the cane and the <laughs> people take like five or six steps, not seeing that the person let go and then they look back and you're just standing there and they're like, Oh my God, you know? And it just, it just sends home so much more of the message that I'm trying to portray Mm -hmm. that way than if I were to preach to them about it, for example. No, and I think that's fantastic. I think these are conversations we should definitely be having. And as far as like accessibility, and I did see in a separate interview, because um, you have quite a few interviews and you know quite a few performances out on the internet. So I do want to say to listeners, I will be tagging YouTube videos, your website, along with your audio comic uh, links in the bio of this episode. So definitely check it out because, I mean, not only will you be amused with the magic, it's like the sense of humor and it's just, it's all just so beautifully intertwined. And then touching upon accessibility in a separate interview that you mentioned, is that you wanted to create or you wanted to make magic more accessible in particular with the library at the magic castle. I don't know if you would want to talk about that. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, the grant didn't come to fruition. Um, you know, I may try again uh, at some point in the future, but, um, access to books, for example, um, has been incredibly challenging for most of you know, the story of blindness throughout history. You know, you have pretty much no access. And then we have Braille. And then Braille provided, you know, an amazing opportunity to become literate in, you know, a very similar way that a sighted person would be literate. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, the availability of of Braille books, you know, it it grew over time. But then um, the teaching of Braille started to diminish and less and less blind people were using braille and part of the reason for that was because a lot of the education was taken away in the schools and a lot of people assumed hey if i give this person a cassette of the book well they're reading and that's not exactly true and not to say that i don't love audiobooks because i do but that's not literacy um you know so there's this like tangled web of challenges, you know, for the sake of, of accessing material. And we live in an age now where, you know, artificial intelligence and optical character recognition and, 
you know, screen reader technology and all this stuff is is so readily available to everyone that we have more material than we've ever had before. But what I'm what I've experienced is most of the time, the stuff that I have access to is either new material, which is great, um, or it's the introductory level to a particular subject. So like you may be able to learn, you, you may be able to read like how to program for dummies, but when you start getting into like the real nuance of it, like master's degree level or graduate degree level mm-hmm. um, material, that accessibility begins to drop off significantly. So it's the same thing with my passion, which is magic. Um, I have access to a lot of the beginner level books and those are great. And I've used those for a time, but you know, I'm 20 some odd years into this craft. So the more advanced material isn't readily available because the philosophy in the, in the magic community is they really, you know, want to preserve the, um, you know, the reading of the books, keeping the secrecy of the books, the collectability of the books. Mm. But eventually it's just going to be at a point where um, more of that material becomes more accessible. And I've found workarounds over the years. So I use readers in the Magic Castle library and um, that can be very helpful. I contact the authors of some of the books if they're alive and I ask them directly if I would, you know, if they would be willing to offer me, uh, you know, a digital copy of their book. And uh, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And so, you know, I, I work my way through it, you know, but that that objective was really because of exactly that. There's there's only so far the accessibility sometimes goes. And in order to be competitive in my fields, I need to have equal access to the material that all my peers have. I'm proud of my 
chances and for a while they lived quite happily up there he came from new york city man but he couldn't take the pace and thought it was like a doggy dog world and he went to san francisco spent a year in outer space with a sweet little san franciscan girl i can hear my mother wailing and a whole lot of scraping and chairs I don't know what it is, but there's definitely something going on upstairs. Lies, just dig yourself. Lies, just dig yourself. Lies, just dig yourself back in that hole. Well, yeah, New York City, he had to get out of there. And San Francisco, well, I don't know. And then to L.A., where he spent about a day. He thought even the pale sky stars were smart enough to keep well away from L.A. Meanwhile, Larry made up names for the ladies, like Miss Boo and Miss Quick. He stockpiled weapons and took pot shots in the air. He feasted on their lovely bodies like a lunatic and wrapped himself up in their soft yellow hair. I can hear chants and incantations And some guy is mentioning me in his prayers Well, I don't know what it is But there's definitely something going on upstairs
Francisco, L.A., I don't know. But Larry grew increasingly neurotic and obscene. I mean, he, he never asked to be raised up from a tomb. I mean, no one ever actually asked him to forsake his dreams. Anyway, to cut a long story short, fame finally found him. Mirrors became his torturers. Cameras snapped him at every chance. The women all went back to their homes and their husbands with secret smiles in the corners of their mouths. He ended up, like so many of them do, back in the streets of New York City in a soup queue, a dope fiend, a slave, then prison, then the madhouse, then the grave. Oh, poor Larry. But what do we really know of the dead and who actually cares? Well, I don't know what it is, but there's definitely something going on.
Um, and then kind of touching upon uh, authors, you actually created an audio comic. I know we mentioned it earlier in the episode, but I kind of want to go a little bit more in depth. What was the process like writing an audio comic that centers a blind assassin living in a chaotic world? Um, so I mentioned earlier that I loved and still love Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, other types of role-playing games. And I've, I've done that for a very, very long time, but I was also a lover of comics and, you know, especially the Marvel universe as a kid. And when I was a kid, you know, that was not necessarily a popular thing. That was a geeky thing. Um, you know, and you kind of went to your friend's house and you snuck into the older brother's, you know, closet when he was at work to look at these comics that you couldn't afford, you know? And I can remember like carefully taking off the cellophane and like making sure that we put everything back so that there's no way that, you know, the older brother would find out whether we got into his stuff or not, you know? And, um, I would, when I was a little bit older, before I lost my vision, you know, I would go to comic book stores, not to collect um, the actual physical copy of the books, but to collect the stories to create so that I could take these ideas and then go create stories of my own for games that I would play with friends. So instead of like collecting the more valuable comic books, I would collect like Marvel Universe, which was you know, character sheets of all the characters, no story, but it would have like, you know, what issue they appeared, what superpowers they had, you know, who they, who their allies were, who their enemies were, and like a little backstory or a bio on each of the characters. And I would just absorb this stuff so that I could be like, oh, I like that. I want to put this in this character in here. And so, you know, I, and then I, I went to college and I got a degree in history, um, but I took a lot of creative writing classes as a you know, as electives. And my English professors were like, you know, um, when are you going to come to the English department and skip that, you know, history stuff? And I would be like, yeah, 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 you know, kind of thing. And I, I, I really kind of, I never, I thought it was arrogant to call myself a writer, to be perfectly honest. Hmm. And um, there was an incident, uh, which I'm sure you remember. It was uh, Bataclan in Paris with the shootings Mm -hmm. and it, that event more than anything else shook me to my core because I love music. I love going to live music. Um, and if I was there in Paris, I probably would have gone to that show. And I went, you know, we were dealing with a lot of political unrest Uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were campaigning against each other at the time. Mm -hmm. And we were learning a lot about America that wasn't necessarily good um, in a, in a different way. And I can talk about that more a little bit, but um, I got, I got angry and then I got scared and then I felt totally helpless because there's, what am I going to do? You know? And, um, this idea of this character kind of manifested out of my anger. Mm-hmm. And I imagined something that could do something. 
And I kind of, you know, played around with it in my imagination. And every once in a while, I would talk to my wife about it. And she said, write it down. And so I did. And at that same time, there was a contest for a comic book. Uh, so uh, I'm going to try and make this a little brief, but there, there was a guy in Israel who was trying to make comic books accessible for blind people. And it was something that I fantasized about for a long time. And the fact that somebody was doing it was amazing. So I called him. I, I did a Skype call um, over Israel because, you know, it's so easy to do now with technology the way that it is. Mm -hmm. And we had a two-hour conversation. And he's like, look, if you have any ideas, write them down because I'm having a contest and I would love to hear what you have. And I said, actually, I do have an idea. And so I started to formalize that process. So, you know, I kind of learned how comic books were written, which I really didn't know, um, and started putting this character into it. And, you know, eventually uh, she became female and I decided to make her Afghan because uh, of all the stuff that was going on in Afghanistan at the time. And then, you know, she was obviously going to be blind right from the beginning and then I went, what is the craziest thing a blind person could possibly do? And I, I met so many successful blind people in my life. I've met blind lawyers, blind doctors, teachers, parents. I met a blind stunt pilot once. I met a blind rancher. So like my scope of what is possible for blind people was, you know, pretty out there already. And I went, assassin. And I said, that would be really cool. And Afsana was born. That is absolutely amazing. And as I mentioned before to the listeners, I will be adding the link to the website uh, for Unseen. And definitely check it out. It is, it's on my list um, of like books or audio books to, ha uh, to read, not read, listen to. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm super excited about it. I can't hype it enough, so I will definitely be sharing it on my platform as well. Um, so you did mention live music and also working at a record shop. We did briefly mention your relationship with music before recording, but I mean, if you don't mind sharing your relationship with music. Yeah, so um, my, my mother told me that the first thing I learned how to do as a kid was to turn a record over by myself. That was like the first thing I knew how to do by myself. Aww. And uh, we used to listen to a lot of Harry Chapin in the house. Do you know who that is? I'm not entirely familiar. No. He's a storyteller um, and a musician. Um, and he would have these amazing journeys in his songs and um, he played, he sang Cats in the Cradle, if you're familiar with that. So um, we, uh, I would dance in front of the record player and my mother ended up put, putting me in a dance school. And so at five years old, I started tap dancing and you know, kind of like every other art form that I get involved in, I took it very seriously for a time as, as much as a kid possibly could. And I would compete up and down the East Coast as a tap dancer. 
And um, I loved it. And I kept up with it until I was a teenager. And, um, you know, my parents got a divorce. I started finding out that I was going blind. I rebelled as a, you know, I was going through all the stuff of adolescence. So um, tap dancing didn't necessarily fit my rock and roll lifestyle at the time, um, which I regret to this day. I should have kept up with it. And um, eventually I did go back to it for a while. And, um, you know, it's it's always been a joy in my life. So, um, yeah. And and then to evolve that into uh, going to live shows and like really absorbing that um, it's just it's such a wonderful thing to do. Um, I missed it so much during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm so happy to be back and doing it again. So I've probably been to about five or six shows since, you know, the pandemic started to to subside a little bit. I know we're still in it, um, you know, but uh, it, it, it is such a powerful thing to hear people perform and to see how they elaborate on things, you know, from, uh, you know, from what the record sounds like. And then it's so amazing. Like then you go have that live experience. And then when you listen to that song on the radio or on your, you know, uh, Spotify or whatever, it changes the experience. Right. Yeah. So we hear with the brain too. No, definitely. Um, I actually had a previous uh, guest on the shack where he is in a wheelchair um, and he talks about certain venues being accessible where it's like, yeah, there's bands that he wants to see, but he knows which venues to kind of pick out saying it's like, oh, well, like it's not made for my wheelchair. Like I can't make it in there. Or I mean, like, have you faced any accessibility challenges at venues or at shows? Probably less than wheelchair access. Um, You know, I use a cane. Uh, You know, I think maybe a guide dog could be, could experience some discrimination issues depending um but uh you know my cane is pretty mobile so like i'm going uh thursday night to go see animal collective at the greek theater Hmm. and so what i did was um i contacted the venue and i said hey i'm going by myself this is the situation i'm gonna need you know help getting to my seat and i'm gonna need help you know, getting to a location where I can call a car because I'm using rideshare as well to get there and back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, giving them that little bit of heads up uh, makes a big difference. And I don't do that all the time. It's just because this venue is very large and it just, it'll make it more enjoyable for me if I have all that stuff set up. Yeah. But if I'm going into like, a, you know, 150 seat you know, theater, like small venue or something like that. I don't do any of that. I just go in, you know, get my ticket, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, eventually somebody will come up to me and be like, Hey, do you need help with anything or whatever? Um, or not, I'll listen and I'll hear where the, you know, the, the glasses are clinking. So I know that's where the bar is and I'll mosey my way over there and grab myself a beer and then, um, you know, find a spot that I feel, you know, is kind of a little bit spacious uh, I like to sit by the sound booth mm-hmm. is kind of my favorite place to nest. Um, sometimes I'll go up front, front, depending on the show. 
Um, but like the sound booth's a nice a, a nice spot because you get to hear the guys kind of work in their craft while at the same time listening to the show. Yeah. And you know, so you know, secret tip: go go hang out by the sound booth if you're looking for. <laughs> Spot to hang out because obviously they got a good view of the stage too oh yeah definitely um i mean like i know for me like my first concert that i ever went to like i was 15 and i was just like mind blown i was like this is rock and roll and it's like i never want to go back like do you remember your first concert like what was that like oh yeah it was uh monsters of rock 1988 fox uh, sullivan stadium in uh, massachusetts it was uh it was uh metallica scorpion uh kingdom come um, Van Halen, uh, I think that was it. Oh, and Dokken. Mm. And, uh, it, it was 120 degrees out or something crazy. And, uh, I'm wearing, you know, ripped jeans, Slayer t-shirt, uh, you know, leather jacket, um, you know, sporting a mullet with my buddy Randy, who, um, is a professional juggler actually. And uh, um, we went, it was the first time his mom dropped us off. We were 15 years old, huge venue, you know, pushing our way through the crowd. And the heat was so bad, the fire department came and they put the hoses on the crowd. Like they shot water up into the crowd so that um, everybody could stay cool until the evening. Because it was, you know, it was five bands. It was going on all day. Mm-hmm. And I can remember my leather jacket because it got all wet. It, the arms stretched where they were down to my ankles. I ended up throwing the jacket away. It was totally ruined, but I had a ball. I mean, it was just the people and the energy and the. Oh, it it's, sounds it's, amazing. It's so great. It's, I mean, uh, I mean, some of the shows I saw, I mean, we, we could go through the laundry list of, you know, but. I just went to Pearl Jam at the L.A. Forum, which is one of my favorite places in, in L.A. to go see music. I've seen Yo-Yo Ma at the Bowl. I saw Jane's Addiction six weeks after 9-11 at the Hollywood Bowl. That was insane. Um, just so much stuff. So many good. Morphine. I was a morphine junkie and not the drug, but the band. Um <laughs> for forever because you know i grew up in new england so like seeing them at lupo's heartbreak hotel in providence rhode island you know before anybody knew who the hell they were when good and cure for pain came out simultaneously you know that same year and uh you know mark sandman who sadly uh, died of a heart attack um in 99 in italy um he comes out with a bouquet of orchids like the cover of good and puts it in front of the bass drum and starts reciting his poetry. And then Dana comes out with saxophone and, oh man, that, that the room swayed the whole night. It was beautiful. See, I I mean, like I always tell people like, you know, like you have to go to live, like you have to go to concerts, like these live shows, like it is such a beautiful sense of community there. Um, I mean, like, I'm a big fan of jumping in the pit and I have never felt more welcomed than in, than being in the pit. Like if you fall, like people pick you up, you know, like you lose a shoe, someone's going to find it and hand it to you. Like, or like when people are just like singing in unison, like that gives me chills and it's just, it's so beautiful. I agree a thousand percent. I think, uh, you know, 
I mean, mosh pits in the 80s, you know, I mean, sometimes they got weird depending on, you know, the band and the crowd and the scene, you know, but for the most part, um, it's it's a welcoming thing. It is a celebration. It's just a dance. Mm -hmm. You know, it was never meant to be violent. It was meant to be performative and expressive. And, you know, life is hard. You know, people have things that they need to release and no place better than during live music to do it. I mean, it's electric. Oh, definitely. So, I mean, this is just kind of a question that I ask to every like every guest across the board is if you had to put together a curriculum for a class, what book, film and album would be on the class syllabus? Uh, I would say the book would be Art and Fear. Um, it's about a 120 page book and it talks about um, artists' fears about making art. And it is so philosophical and so valuable. I read it probably once a year. Um, so I would definitely recommend that. Um, as far as films are concerned, um, there's so many, but the one that I, I go back to, um, I love Miller's Crossing. If you've ever seen that, it's such a, it's a Coen brother movie and, uh, early one. And there's just, there's so many wonderful characters in that story, um, I highly recommend checking it out if you if you get the time to do it. And then the last question was, um, what album? That's the hardest. I mean, I could say morphine good, but I probably I would either say Tom Waits closing time or Tom Waits small change. Again, because there's just these amazing stories and style. And then for extra credit, I would recommend if no one's read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, mm. um, you should really, really, really do it. Because it is amazing to read that book with all our misconceptions about Frankenstein's monster and how it was portrayed in the movies and how radically different it is from the original story. And I think that that just flips your brain when you get that in there. So that would be my curriculum. I mean, those are absolutely fantastic suggestions. And I couldn't agree more with uh, Frankenstein. It is, it is a fantastic read. Find myself singing in the same songs
patrol these waters. Sharks patrol these waters. Don't let your fingers dangle in the water. And don't you worry about the dayglow orange life preserver. It won't save you. It won't save you. Swim for the shore just as fast as you are able. Swim like a motherfucker. Swim. shifts to now, the ever-glorious now, the ever-present now, dredged in flour and deep fat fried and cooled on paper towels and then devoured. You know, I spent 15 years in a life raft, 15 years in a life raft, now I got something to say, stay in your lifeboats, people, stay in your lifeboats, people, it's murder out there, murder out there, sharks patrol these waters. Sharks patrol these waters. Hey, don't you worry about the Deglo Orange Life Preserver. It won't save you. It won't save you. Swim for the shore just as fast as you were able. Swim. I mean, I don't have any other questions for you other than what advice do you have for budding artists? Fear is part of the process. Um, everybody's scared. Everybody uh, feels that loss, that lack of confidence, that um, not belonging, all of those, all of that stuff. And um, I think you just have to find a way to persevere and work your way through it. And then also, I think it's very, very important that you lean on your community. The people that are gonna love your art are the people that love you. And whether you're struggling with something or you're feeling um, very confident in something, to be able to go to those people and 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 tap into that well, um, is is essential and it'll never not be valuable um and if you find success in your art and i hope you do um those people that love and care about you are going to be um still that source of energy uh for you to keep going no definitely uh i mean i guess i lied that wasn't the last question um when you said as far as fear is a process, what came to mind is that how you've always been on stage, like, you know, you started with tap dancing, magic, you know, you've always been in front of a crowd one way or another. 
I mean, what was your, those performances like? Like, does a fear ever go away or is it just always present in every performance? Yeah, it's always there. Um, so uh, I, I heard a, a famous comedian uh, say he always has the same wish right before he goes off st on stage that the show is canceled. And, it, you know, then you get out there and, you know, you shake that off and, you know, either, you know, you feel that energy and that joy of being back out there it can be it can be like that sometimes. But I think more often than not, especially with, um, you know, performing like something technical like tap dancing or magic, um, you know, it's almost like a program in your brain. And, you know, the program just starts and your body starts moving. And uh, I can remember one day in particular, I was on stage at the clock tower in Denver and um, I was doing a billiard ball act and I'm my hands are moving and my body is moving in the way that it's supposed to be. And I've got the misdirection and all that stuff going on. And my brain, all, it, it was, it almost left my body. And all of a sudden, while I'm on stage doing the act, I could listen to the conversation that the person was having at the bar with the bartender. And I could like look over to the other part of the room and, you know, listen to their conversation. And it, it, it was like, it, it was like two things were happening at once. And I, I remember walking off stage and being like, wow, that's, that is what I'm looking for every time. And it doesn't happen every time, but when it does, it feels so good to have that control, you know, of yourself and your, your awareness. And th that allows you to really express yourself with your art in a way that you know you typically couldn't when you're mired in you know method or you know the the, the technical part of it you know you gotta you gotta reach beyond that at some point and you know it takes a while but if you keep doing it you'll find it yeah, i mean definitely keep keep doing it is like I think the core of any art, just like keep at it. You know, I am so grateful that you gave me a bit of your time. We can chat for hours. And I do want to say that the door is always open for you to come back to the shack. Thank um, you. And yeah, thank you so much. So till next week, guys, thanks for tuning in.